If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 30 years ago, in the summer of 1991, Slovenia waged a brief successful war against Yugoslav forces to secure its independence from Yugoslavia. Though the conflict lasted just a few days and saw relatively few casualties, it helped set in motion events that would lead to the breakup of Yugoslavia and far greater bloodshed in Croatia, Bosnia and Kosovo. One of the Yugoslav soldiers based in Slovenia at the time was Dejan Jokic. He's now a historian based at Goldsmiths University and for his current research project he's revisiting the conflict investigating his own memories as well as those of former comrades. He was joined in conversation by BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. So Diane, before we talk specifically about the war in Slovenia, I think we'll probably need a bit of background about Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. So how had the country come to the point where constituent parts of it were starting to look to break away? Yeah, this is a this is a kind of an obvious question to start with, and it's also a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I think there there are several kind of uh, uh, factors that contributed to this eventually fragmentation and a violent violent uh, uh, war, or, or rather a series of wars. One can say that followed. There were three other wars that followed: Slovenia, and Croatia, Bosnia, and then Kosovo. At the end of the decade, one could start with the de- death of President Tito who was also Marshal Tito, he was in charge of the army as well, in 1980. So Tito was was this uh, powerful leader who emerged first as a resistance leader and the Communist Party leader during the Second World War in occupied Yugoslavia. And he led a successful resistance movement against Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and a a series of local collaborators, most notably uh, the Croatian Ustasha regime. He also fought against a royalist resistance or also various groups that also sometimes collaborated with the enemy in order to to fight against uh, the communists. So this is the first thing to keep in mind. And Tito and the Communist Party were able to not only liberate what was effectively the first former Yugoslavia, but also to reunite it and to reimagine it as a kind of federation uh, of six socialist republics, the largest one of which was Serbia, which itself had two kind of uh, autonomous regions or provinces, Vojvodina in the north and Kosovo in the South. This was very much uh, based on the Soviet model in which you had a Russian uh, Republic within the Soviet Union, which itself was also a federation, the Russian Federation within the Soviet Federation. The second thing to keep in mind is that even though Tito was and the Yugoslav uh, Communist Party at that time were unquestionably Stalinist, they clashed with Stalin in 1948. By the end of the 1940s, uh, Yugoslavia under the Communist Party uh, and under Tito's leadership 
and became a country that successfully resisted both the uh, uh, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and then uh, uh, Stalin's Soviet Union. And unsurprisingly, this also led to, to quite a lot of interest in Yugoslavia and, and support from the West. So Yugoslavia received quite a lot of economic but also military aid from, from the United States in particular, but also Great Britain uh, in the 1950s. Later, Yugoslavia uh, kind of uh, uh, re reconciled with the Soviets after the death of Stalin in 1953, but it never became a member of the Soviet bloc. And, it's, and it never joined the Warsaw Pact. And similarly, it never joined NATO or Western institutions. Instead, it was some sort of a neutral, but, but not, not, not exactly neutral country. It actually pursued a policy of active and peaceful coexistence and non-alignment in foreign uh, affairs. The reason why this is important is that for Yugoslavia, Cold War is crucial for the for this existence of Yugoslavia and for the stability of Yugoslavia as a country that, that was a communist country, but not part of the Soviet bloc. That was a European country, but, but its main uh, foreign uh, policy focus was actually on, on what we now call Global South or used to be called the third world, uh, the uh, Asian and African countries. There were also uh, several uh, South American, Latin American countries, and also Cyprus was involved in this movement. But Yugoslavia was kind of the only really European country that was part of this. Uh, and Tito is, is central to this. President Tito, who, as I said, was also, and this is important, he was the uh, head of state, he was uh, uh, chairman of the Communist Party, and he was also a uh, marshal. He was in charge of the army. So he's a central figure. Uh, and this is how Yugoslavia kind of understands itself. Uh, oh, in the last few years, we have had, uh, you know, anniversaries of the end of the Cold War and, and kind of the end of the East-West binary. Well, for Yugoslavs, this binary did not exist so much. I mean, it was there, but they understood their position in the world uh, slightly differently. But of course, uh, uh, Yugoslavia's place in this, in this world, which was not simply, you know, East-West, but it was a more complex complex, uh, was nevertheless very much dependent on that kind of balance of power. And, and also on the leadership of this very strong, strong leader, Tito. One thing I didn't maybe mention, and I will not go into any detail, but what happened in occupied Yugoslavia during the Second World War was even more violent uh, than what happened in the 1990s. And I, and I don't mean just the Nazi, the, the, the very, very brutal Nazi German occupation, for instance, in Serbia or, or Italian occupation of what is now Dalmatia, Croatian coast and, and Montenegro. Uh, but I mean the, 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 the war among the Yugoslavs <laughs> between, you know, various Serb and Croat and Bosnian Muslim groups, but also among these groups. Uh, a very brutal war was fought among, uh, uh, by, for instance, communist Serbs and uh, royalist Serbs and similarly among Croats. Something like one million people died in, uh, in the territory of what was Yugoslavia, uh, which, which at the time had around 16 million population. Now, during the wars of the 1990s, the figure is thankfully much lower. It's, it's uh, almost certainly not higher than 150,000 in a country that at that time had 25 million population. So this is just to give you an illustration how brutal this war was. Nevertheless, Tito and the Communist Party managed to re reunite the Yugoslavs. I guess I, I, in a long way, I've already given you an answer to so, so the factors that kept Yugoslavia together that were or, or perhaps helped keep Yugoslavia together. I think this was a little bit more simple. It would be simplistic to say that there were only these factors because this idea about the Yugoslav unity actually dates back to the first half of the 19th century. And it's very similar to, to German and Italian uh, kind of unificationist movements of that era of the 19th century. But nevertheless, uh, by the late 1980s, Tito is no longer alive. The international relations uh, that kind of uh, defined Yugoslavia in many ways and, and to which Yugoslavia made an important contribution were also kind of changing and, and changing quite radically. But, but of course, there was a number of other reasons. Uh, 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 nationalism is, is something that, you know, historians and, 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 and sociologists are debating whether this nationalism ever went away or it was simply kept 
kept under control by the Communist Party. I would, I think this is also very simplistic. Communism anywhere, including in the Soviet Union, often used nationalism as, as an ideology that in certain times could could help with, with, with popular support and with mass mobilization. And the same was true of Yugoslavia. Nevertheless, Tito kept a kind of fine balance within Yugoslavia. So he kind of contro- kept, especially Serbs, but also Croats on a tight leash because they were the two largest and potentially potentially most destructive nations for this federation. But then he encouraged some smaller nationalisms, uh, for instance, Montenegrin and eventually Bosnian Muslim or or Macedonian, or or their identities became stronger and recognized officially by the state. But again, this this is all, uh, uh, all this balance is kind of disappearing uh, towards the late 1980s. And Yugoslavia also really from the the late 1960s, but certainly uh, from the mid 70s become becomes a loose federation it's increasingly confederalized really and uh, and it's it's six constituent republics are now described by the Yugoslav 1974 constitution uh, as states sovereign states within the Yugoslav federation uh, Yugoslavia almost moves in, uh, towards some sort of a socialist mini socialist European Union on the, on the southeast periphery of of Europe, right, and so so that this is kind of uh, um, and we know in in uh, you know in recent t- uh, times that that, uh, that that certain countries when certain countries declare independence or, or seek independence from from a broader uh, federation that this could actually uh, uh, destabilize things uh, considerably. Uh, on top of that, there was also a serious economic crisis in the 1980s. By that time, it became clear that that state socialism, state socialist command economies were not working. One thing that perhaps I could add at this point is that so another dilemma for me as a historian is to what extent do I uh, put an emphasis on 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 events on the top uh, among the leadership and political and intellectual elites, and to what extent uh, are, are events driven from from below, and I think one needs to kind of combine both. But what what was very unfortunate for Yugoslavia is that in the 1980s there was a series of leaders emerged who actually were not really interested in in kind of dialogue and kind of peaceful resolution to a series of political and economic crises, but rather in promoting their own republic or perhaps their own nation, their own ethnic group. And this is uh, uh, especially true of Serbia's new leader, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, who who became the the leader of the Serbian Communist Party uh, in, in, in 1987 after a conflict within the party in which he managed to marginalize and then completely purge a more moderate faction that was actually in favor of a dialogue. And so the final point in this this first part um, is that Yugoslavia, as I mentioned at the beginning of my answer, was a federation of six republics, and in the case of Serbia, a republic that had its two provinces. And and it was in some ways an ethnic federation. So each republic had a titular nation. So Slovenia was the republic for the Slovenians, Croatia for the Croats, but also for a, a rather sizable Croatian Serb minority, which uh, in 1991, numbered around 11 to 12 percent. Uh, Bosnia, which in, which which kind of resembled a mini Yugoslavia with uh, with uh, something like uh, 42, 43 percent of a Bosnian Muslim population and 34 percent Bosnian Serb, and just under 20 percent Bosnian Croat population, was nobody's titular republic, but nevertheless it was understood as possibly primarily a Bosnian Muslim republic since they had no other republic. But as I said already, uh, so th- 30, one third of Bosnia's population was Serb and, and one sixth maybe of Croatia's population was also Serb. Uh, and so, so from Serbia's leadership point of view, from Milosevic's point of view, well, uh, the thinking was if this federation is going to further kind of uh, become further loose and possibly even disintegrate, where do we draw the borders of these new successor states? Should they be these republics? 
or should they should they be modified these borders so that they kind of more or less resemble ethnic uh, borders which of course would not be possible without a conflict because people lived in mixed areas especially in bosnia but also parts of croatia and parts of serbia and to make things even more complicated uh, the the last yugoslav constitution of 1974 was not actually clear on this question. <laughs> this was debated widely, but the, the problem was that the, 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 the constitution supported both views. You could argue that the constitution argued that these republics should should be should be allowed, should they wish so, to to become independent, but also that the peoples of Yugoslavia can do that. So, so both sides used uh, this, uh, you know, interpreted the constitution in the way uh, that it suited them. Now, this this paradox actually became clear already in 1974. But while Tito was alive, it did not matter. Tito was this overall leader, and the Yugoslav army was the only institution that was never federalized. So these two institutions kept the federation together. By the beginning of the Slovenian war, or, or the final Yugoslav crisis, which, which really one could argue started in January 1990, when the League of Communists of Yugoslavia, as the Communist Party of Yugoslavia was officially called, collapsed. Its last congress in Belgrade uh, uh, was held in January in Belgrade 1990. And after uh, a series of, of disagreements and, and arguments, the, the Slovenian and Croatian delegates left the congress. And this was Kind of, this was January 1990. In June 1991, these two republics would declare independence from the Yugoslav Federation. So what happened in January 1990 in the last Congress of the Communist Party, in a way, anticipated uh, uh, the political developments of, of a year and a half uh, uh, later. No, it's, it's obviously a very complex history, so thank you for going going through that all for us. So the focus of our discussion today is mainly on what happened in Slovenia. So as you said, Slovenia declared independence and then a short war was fought. So what was the kind of broader Yugoslav reaction to the Slovenian Declaration of Independence? A brief uh, uh, background again. So, so when 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 scholars or outside observers look at Yugoslavia historically, you know they quite rightly point out that the, the key axis is between Serbs and Croats, the two largest groups. I have been also. This is also in my my previous research. I have also subscribed to this. Uh, school of thought. However, there are scholars who have argued always that the key relationship was between Serbia and Slovenia, between the Serbs and the Slovenes, for different reasons. Uh, uh, even geographically, Slovenes are in the north, Serbs are in the east, kind of northeast, and Croats are squeezed in between. If Slovenes and Serbs want to live in a, in a federation together, Croats actually have little choice, right? But there, there are other reasons also. I, I will not go into detail. I previously mentioned that from the mid, mid to late 1960s, there is a greater decentralization of Yugoslavia. And this was not just at the political level, but also at the level of economy. Republics, uh, individual republics begin to, to actually enjoy more freedom to pursue their own economic policies. And it was around that time that the Slovenian party leadership begins to pursue a more liberal uh, and, 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 and actually market-influenced, uh, uh, well, not exactly market economy, but kind of a socialist economy with elements of market economy. So Slovenia actually begins to push towards a greater decentralization also economically, whereas Serbia is not... It's complex, but Serbia also has actually various liberals. But nevertheless, this conflict between Slovenia and Serbia really uh, uh, erupts in the late 1980s with the rise of Slobodan Milosevic, who, as I mentioned seeks to keep the federation tighter or to re uh, kind of make it a little bit more centralized not not centralized but a kind of tighter federation whereas the slovenian leadership seeks to to actually make it even more loose at uh, this time and and one one should for, not forget the, the beginning of civil society at this time in both Serbia and Slovenia and, and across former Yugoslavia, but it was particularly strong in Slovenia. And also various alternative groups and movements that emerged. The listeners might know of the band Laibach, which was is a well-known Slovenian music band, which actually emerged at this time. And it was part of a 
of a, of a movement that challenged the socialist system. So it was not just the Slovenian party, but actually non-party. Uh, and various kind of nationalist intellectuals and youth students who, who wanted to change. So this clash between Slovenia and Serbia begins then. And, and the th- another major player in this, in this story is the Yugoslav People's Army, which, as I previously mentioned, is not federalized. So it's still a centralized institution. Top leadership, the, the most senior officers are, are quite representative of the Yugoslav mix at this time. Uh, there are two actually, uh, out of, uh, say, five top officers, two are Slovenians, and one and a half is a, is a Croat and one and a half is a Serb. The chief of staff was half Croat, half Serb. Nevertheless, the lower officer corps uh, is, is actually mostly... Uh, predominantly Serb and Montenegrin. And this is true of conscripts uh, because of because Serbs and Mon- Serbs together with Montenegrins were the largest group. So now uh, uh, to, to answer more directly your question, following the, the collapse of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia really in uh, January 1990, uh, then, the, then the Slovenian party leadership agrees uh, to hold uh, a multi-party elections, to, uh, in other words, for the first time since the Second World War, to allow for other political parties to contest for power. So there is already in April, so only three months later, April 1990, the first multi-party elections in Slovenia. And a kind of broad coalition called the Democratic Opposition of Slovenia wins the elections. Uh, but the, the, former, the, the former Communist Party leader becomes the first president. So it's a kind of some sort of a compromise between the communists and various uh, liberals and democrats and nationalists. And, and Croatia follows the, uh, actually also at the end of, of April, there are first uh, multi-party elections in Croatia in which a right-wing uh, nationalist conservative kind of a Christian democratic party wins uh, the elections. And this alarms Serbia in which Milosevic, as I already said, he kind of, Serbia really does this two years before in 1987. There is a really a change of uh, government in Serbia, which is still communist, but now increasingly uh, uh, borrowed from nationalist re- nationalist rhetoric. So, so Milosevic, of course, doesn't look at this very kindly. And he has an ally in the Yugoslav army, which also is keen to preserve kind of a more, fed- more centralized Yugoslav federation and to preserve, if possible, the communist ideology. I think it's important to remember, even though it's, it's tempting and sometimes not, not entirely incorrect and wrong to interpret Yugoslavia through nationalist conflict. This was just one layer. This was a complex, multi-layered conflict. And ideology certainly played a part. And so, so once this new government is formed in Slovenia, they promise that they will hold a referendum on independence by the end of the year, which is what they do in December, uh, uh, in December, in late December 1990. Both Slovenia and Croatia hold a referenda on independence, and in both republics, the people overwhelm those who vote overwhelmingly vote for independence. The caveat is that in in Slovenia, this was not such a huge problem because the vast majority of the population of this still Yugoslav Republic of Slovenia is ethnically Slovene, something like 95%. In Croatia, this is not true. As I mentioned, there is a significant Croatian Serb minority, which during the Second World War was a victim of a kind of, really a victim of a genocide that was committed by the local uh, fascist uh, puppet regime of satellite Croatia. And they respond, react very strongly. They boycott uh, the, 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 the referendum. And so in Croatia, again, the, the, those who voted overwhelmingly vote for independence, but this is perhaps 60% of the population only. Once the, 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 the re, uh, results of, the, of these referenda are announced, both Slovenia and Croatia say that this will become uh, legally binding in six months. So in six months, they will declare independence. And this happens on the 25th or 26th of June, 1991. In fact, it was meant to be on the 26th of June. That would have been exactly the six months. But Slovenia does it one day before, and Croatia immediately follows. How does the rest of Yugoslavia respond? Slovenia and Croatia respond differently. Their leaderships respond differently to this. Croats declare independence, but do nothing about this. A little bit like Catalonia in recent times. They say, now we are independent, and that's it. Uh, Slovenians, however, say, now we are independent, which also means we have to establish control over our borders. So, so the Slovenian. Okay. So one, one other thing. When I said that the Yugoslav People's Army was a, was a, was actually not a federalized institution, it was still very Yugoslav. 
Uh, one needs to keep in mind that it was still part of something that was called, uh, you know, the Yugoslav Armed Forces and the People's Defense. It was a kind of socialist style uh, defense uh, system, which also included uh, reservist forces who were organized on territorial basis. They were actually Republican. If you want, there were many Republican reserve armies. And Slovenia possessed one, which was mostly Slovene, uh, which actually had, li- uh, not, it was not as w- well uh, uh, armed as the Yugoslav army, but it was much more numerous than the Yugoslav army uh, troops and garrisons that were based in Slovenia at the time. Uh, so they immediately actually took over from, from uh, 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 took over border posts, international border posts with Italy and Austria, but also they, they put border posts with the rest of Yugoslavia, in this case with Croatia. And, and, and started kind of uh, clashing with the Yugoslav army. The Yugoslav army was ordered to prevent this to, because the, this was part of the Yugoslav constitution that the army must preserve the territorial integrity of the country. So a war breaks out pretty much within a day from the, uh, Slovenia's uh, declaration of independence. Uh, the rest of Yugoslavia is shocked. Uh, I think um, Croatia is also very worried. Uh, uh, the new Croatian president, who is the leader of this kind of Christian democratic right-wing nationalist party, is in fact a former communist general <laughs> who, who still has contacts in the army and he he's cautious about confronting the army directly. He thinks the army is still superior. So, 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 so they're also maybe nervous about Slovenia moving so quickly. In Bosnia, for instance, there is a, an overwhelming support for the sub- preservation of the federation and for the Yugoslav army. Uh, the same was true of Serbia, Montenegro and, and Macedonia. Uh, so so the, 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 the response is rather different, but it's one of shock. And I think it's also one of shock internationally. I was recently reading some international press at the time. And even though the Yugoslav crisis had been going on, and there were even some small uh, um, armed incidents in parts of Croatia where Serbs and Croats lived uh, in mixed areas uh, since actually already since August 1990, everybody was shocked uh, that, that this was now happening. Yugoslavia, after all, had been hailed for for decades as this model of multi-ethnic and multi-religious and multicultural coexistence, and suddenly this was all happening. And and to keep the wider context, I think in in uh, uh, in uh, in mind, this is also the time when Europe is uniting increasingly. We already know by this time that the European Community will transform into into a European Union. We already know by this time that actually the communist regimes elsewhere have collapsed, and there is this wave of optimism that li- liberal uh, democracy is being established. The end of history, as it was famously declared then, uh, the reunification of Germany. So, so this is a bit of a paradox uh, that, that this country that had been previously such a model of successful coexistence is now disintegrating. So I think this came as a shock to many. Uh, even, even organizations such as uh, CIA apparently were quite surprised that, that things got out of control so quickly, apparently. And then, yeah. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They were talking on on Motorola's and walkie-talkies. And he basically said, if you you shoot at a single soldier, if you kill one of my soldiers, I will flatten Ljubljana, I will destroy the city. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So this war breaks out between Slovenia and the, the Yugoslav People's Army. Now, presumably the Yugoslav People's Army had at its disposal much more military power should it choose to use it. How was the Slovenian government and their army, how did they hope to counter what could be a much superior military force? Yes, so so the, the, uh, the, that's an excellent question, actually. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, we now know a little bit more about this. So again, things are, things are a bit more complex than they, they seemed at the time. So the first thing is uh, Slovenians are uh, uh, inferior in terms of the weaponry, but actually they're superior in terms of manpower. Secondly, they knew that the Yugoslav People's Army, so again, I don't know if it would be appropriate to introduce a personal experience. I was one of these Yugoslav army conscripts stationed in Ljubljana, in, in a major garrison on the outskirts of Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia. And from the, from the first moment, the strict order was we, we cannot shoot only in self-defense. We are still the people's army. So my two immediate officers, most immediate officers, a lieutenant, a lieutenant and a captain, uh, were non-Serb in case, you know, people are wondering. So my, my lieutenant was a Croat from Bosnia and the captain was a Slovenian. And the major uh, in charge of the of the military police battalion in which I served was uh, was a Slovenian also. However, he deserted from the Yugoslav army point of view or, or kind of fled to his own side within several days. And then he was in charge of the siege of the barracks which lasted for about 10 days uh, in total. But but the point is that, that there was already quite a lot of uh, espionage and counter-espionage. So I guess the Slovenian leadership had some idea, some idea that, um, that the army would probably be a little bit, try to be restrained at this point. In, recently, we also have suggestions from, from, from kind of evidence that is coming out and, and memoirs being published that there was perhaps some hope that the army would overreact in order to attract international sympathy. And remember that the sympathy was not necessarily with the Slovenians in everywhere. Uh, Germany and Austria pushed for Slovenians' recognition and Croatians, but Britain and, and the United States did not. They still actually, uh, uh, publicly at least, uh, issued statements in support of the preservation of the Yugoslav Federation at this point. I'm talking about June, July 1991. This changed later, of course. Uh, so I think that, that these are several things uh, uh, to keep in mind. And, and I think they probably also thought that this is the only way to do something. Now, the question, of course, as part of my current research, I also interviewed one of the officers who, who, is, who, who was a Serb, a Bosnian, a Croatian Serb, actually, and who now, in the, from this point perspective, thinks that the army made a terrible mistake by reacting. Uh, so the question is, what if the army did nothing? Uh, if the Slovenians simply, okay, they 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 tried to to take over these border posts and they succeeded. The army quickly re re actually captured them. Uh, but what if things stopped then? I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's very hard to become independent. Actually, more difficult <laughs> than than it seems. Uh, I mean, think about uh, Catalonia. I mentioned. Uh, which declared independence, but nothing happened. I mean, even Britain, uh, from a, such a loose uh, uh, union of countries, it took ages and it was a very difficult procedure of leaving the European Union, and, and so let alone the Yugoslavia. So this is a kind of a hypothetical question. I mean, the army certainly overreacted, at, at, but, but actually it also showed a remarkable restraint, especially if we compare what happened uh, later. But also your question supposes, presupposes that some, some of these nationalist leaders are rational. 
the Slovenian leadership was was uh, heterogeneous. As I mentioned, the president was was a former communist, and he was generally a moderate politician who was in favor of of some sort of compromise and and, and not compromise. He he at this point he unquestionably supported an independent Slovenian state, but he was not necessarily in favor of armed conflict. But that may may not have been the case of everybody. So one of the leaders, a kind of youth, uh, a relatively young nationalist leader was somebody called Janez Janša, who was kind of the war minister in this first government. He's the current prime minister of Slovenia, quite controversial due to his uh, uh, populism and, and actually most recently a statement that, that has been interpreted as an anti-Semitic statement. It was only yesterday, I think. He has close links with Viktor Orban of Hungary and possibly Aleksandar Vucic of Serbia and other populist regions. Uh, so he was one of the leaders of Slovenia's independence. And finally, and then I will finish this part of the answer, it has also emerged subsequently that it seems that there had been an agreement between Slovenia and Serbia uh, to let Slovenia go. <laughs> now, at the end of this 10-day ten, ten war, uh, by the way, I should mention why this war is very important. Uh, one of the reasons is that the, this was the beginning of international presence in the Yugoslav crisis. The European community sent a troika, a three ministers, to try to, to negotiate, uh, to, to mediate between the two warring parties, the, the Yugoslav People's Army and the Slovenian territorials. And they managed to do that. On the 7th of July, 1991, uh, they met at Tito's former residence uh, off the Croatian coast, on an island off the Croatian coast. And, and the two sides agreed to uh, a, a ceasefire and to actually a peace agreement that would last for three months. And during this, this period, some kind of peaceful resolution to the conflict would be, would be found, should be, it was hoped. And during this period, the, the Slovenians would seize the siege of the barracks. So all the army barracks actually had their electricity, water, and food supplies cut off. And the army should withdraw into the, the, the barracks and seize any hostility towards the Slovenians. So both sides had to kind of back off. However, within days, the army unexpectedly and suddenly started withdrawing from Slovenia. Now, the army is not under Milosevic's control at this time. It's still, its leadership is still uh, uh, multi-ethnic. Uh, uh, but it has subsequently emerged that, that Milosevic and the Serbian leadership put pressure on the army to do this because Slovenia had no Serbian or any other significant minority. It was felt that if they want to leave, they can go. <laughs> and then for the rest of the country, which was more complex in terms of ethnic, ethnic mix, mm. new borders would have to be drawn one way or another. So, so we also know that this is what happened as well. So, so I, I guess this also would have given the Slovenian leadership some confidence that perhaps Belgrade and the most powerful uh, leader, Milosevic, the most powerful of these Yugoslav leaders, would not necessarily side with the army. Maybe, maybe publicly, but in reality, not so much. So I, I, I've seen that the casualty figures for the, this Slovenian war were, were quite low. So how much fighting actually did take place during these 10 days? There wasn't actually so much fighting in certain parts so where, where, where we had a kind of smaller isolated uh, military posts, uh, there was more fighting. But the, the larger garrisons, such as the one in which I was based, they were not attacked. They were simply cut off. They were kept under blockade. So we are talking about 44 Yugoslav army officers and soldiers in total and approximately 18 uh, Slovenian territorials. Out of those 44 Yugoslav army uh, uh, casualties, there were also some Slovenes who were still in the army, including the first kind of uh, well-known victim of the war, who was a helicopter pilot who was shot over the center of Ljubljana when he was on the way to bringing bread to our barracks from another barracks where bread was being baked. And so he was a Slovene, actually. <laughs> and this happened kind of in the city of Ljubljana. Uh, his co-pilot was a Macedonian, in fact. But everybody seems to forget him. Uh, there has also been some recent kind of controversy over this, whether, whether the Slovenians shooting at the helicopter knew that he was a Slovene and wanted to kind of uh, further alienate uh, uh, the population from the army or to encourage those Slovenians still remaining in the army to leave or to desert. I, I don't know. This is a mere speculation. But there were incidents like this, but there wasn't some major 
kind of uh, you know uh, frontline battles or bombardment of cities and ethnic cleansing uh, on the, th that we saw later on in the other Yugoslav conflict. So this was, as I said, it lasted uh, between 25th of June, really, 26th of June it, uh, and 7th of July. Uh, in total, it was about 10 days of war because there was a short truce and kind of halfway through this conflict. But nevertheless, so from this perspective, this sounds relatively peaceful, uh, re relatively bloodless. Well, if one can say that, because we're talking about, uh, you know, around 60 casualties, more than 60 in total. But at the time, it was a complete shock. This was the first time that people were being killed in a kind of military confrontation since 1945. Uh, and it was also between the Yugoslavs themselves. And, and this actually marked the end of Yugoslavia. After this, also, it became almost impossible to kind of hope for some kind of peaceful disintegration. So it kind of, if you wish, Slovenia started a domino effect of uh, what happened later. Uh, even though it was a relatively short and, and not such a violent, such a violent war. So, I mean, I realise that the the wars over Croatia, Bosnia, Kosovo are very complicated. We probably don't have time to go into all the details there. But is the reason why they were so much longer and bloodier because their populations were much more mixed, where Slovenia, as you said, was quite ethnically homogenous? I think this is the main reason, actually, yes. Yes, because I think if if you look at Bosnia in particular, uh, uh, one one tends to focus on the on the on the war between the the Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims, especially Sarajevo, Srebrenica. These are the key points, right? But don't forget that there was also a war between Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Muslims in in the, the Herzegovinian region. So the city of Mostar was also badly damaged, including a 16th century Ottoman bridge. The city remains divided to this day, and in Croatia. Uh, it was actually similar also in those regions which were uh, uh, heavily populated by Serbs. One needs to add, as a historian, I always I think it's important, and, and I would say that the current literature that we have on this topic has not paid, I would say, sufficient attention to the legacy of history, especially the legacy of the Second World War. One could actually look at the major uh, uh, spots of, of ethnic violence and fighting during the 1940s in Bosnia and in Croatia in particular, so then look at the 1990s and they would be almost the same or, or more or less in the same region. So there was also a legacy of war. There was a fear of, of kind of becoming a victim again. And, and I mean, if I would be allowed to simplify hugely... <laughs> One could argue, I think, with, with one should argue that in, in Bosnia and in Croatia during the 1940s, the Serbs were the main victims. But then they became the main perpetrators 50 years later. And this is not unusual. You have other cases in, in around the world where former historic victims become perpetrators and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm not making direct analogies, but some analogies could be made. And so I think this 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 um, memory of conflict kind of came back, or perhaps it, it existed as some sort of unofficial history. Several scholars uh, have done work on this kind of unofficial histories or hidden historical accounts, which only began to re-emerge or emerge in the public sphere in the late 1980s. So, and actually there is no history of conflict and animosity between Serbs and Slovenians. In fact, Serbs and Slovenians have a history of kind of collaboration in the Second World War. Most of what is present-day central Serbia was under a very brutal Nazi-German occupation, but actually large parts of Slovenia, including the capital of Ljubljana, were annexed by Nazi Germany, which one needs to remember bordered Yugoslavia following the Anschluss uh, with Austria in 1938. So basically, Germany simply extended. And there was an attempt to Germanize the, the Slav population of Slovenia. So there was some sort of solidarity between Serbs and, and Slovenes that also kind of dates back to the Second World War. A number of, of Slovenian refugees actually ended up in Serbia during the Second World War, trying to escape being Germanized. Uh, uh, and and this, again, this is complex, but I think these, these historical legacies and memories also also play a role here. And this also maybe explains why Serbia and Slovenia relatively quickly kind of made up after. And, 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 and this kind of nostalgia for Yugoslavia emerged in Slovenia before than in any other republic. Or already by the late 1990s, Slovenians were going on holiday to Serbia and kind of becoming, showing, you know, in popular culture, for instance, and in music, uh, signs of nostalgia for this Yugoslav era. 
So I would say that this conflict kind of did not really have all these preconditions. It was not did not have the potential to be so violent as as the conflict in Bosnia and Croatia and in Kosovo indeed had later. This is a very simplistic explanation, but I think I think uh, I, I would kind of yeah I would agree with this kind of I, I think that there is something in this. And so, do you think the main legacy of the war in Slovenia is the fact that? it kicked off the disintegration of Yugoslavia and it it meant that it couldn't go back to a peaceful coexistence. Is that why this war is so important? Yes, yes. I think also it showed that the Yugoslavia... So, so this is the first reason, as I already mentioned. Another one is it kind of in, invited international intervention, which has not always been great, but kind of Yugoslavia invited others to try to manage its own affairs. And this this is fine, but, but uh, the earlier part of our interview when I talked about Yugoslav... Yugoslav's sense of their own identity and their importance, inflated importance in international affairs. This was also a bit of a disaster for many Yugoslavs and a shock that now they were saying some guy from Luxembourg is coming to talk to us about not fighting. I mean, so this is, of course, extremely unfair. Why not? But but this kind of changed the, the self-perception and, uh, uh, among Yugoslavs. It kind of led to a, some sort of a crisis of identity. And I'm talking about various Yugoslav groups, not only not only the Serbs. Also, I think it showed that the Yugoslav People's Army could not really survive the end of communism. It was a communist army. And in fact, the main reason why I think there was this alliance between Milosevic and the army generals is because they both wanted to preserve a one-party system. Milosevic, one should add, uh, eventually also allowed, or the, the reformed communists, uh, allowed uh, uh, multi-party uh, elections to be held in Serbia uh, in November, December 1990. So six, seven months after those took place in in, in uh, Slovenia and Croatia. But nevertheless, they did it only, you know, hesitantly, and they, they would rather not have done that. So the army also had to transform from an ideological army into a kind of in a political party army, if you want, to some sort of a civic army. And it, it, Slovenia proved that this was not possible. Slovenia also proved that the army would have probably used, and maybe I'm contradicting myself now a little bit, but I think the army maybe would have used more power if it had been given a, a, a clearer signal from Belgrade. Again, to use a personal experience, I actually overheard a colonel... Uh, who was uh, the commander of the barracks in which I was stationed, simply by chance, uh, um, I was based, based around the building where the command was uh, as a military policeman. And I overheard his conversation with a Slovenian commander who was just a few hundred meters away. They were talking on, on Motorola's and walkie-talkies. And he basically said, if you, sh- if you shoot at a single soldier, if you kill one of my soldiers, I will flatten Ljubljana. I will destroy the city. And... I think, I thought this is completely, of course, exaggerated. It's an empty threat, but nevertheless, I was happy and I was proud that my commander would say this because we were showing that we were powerful. But I did not think that this would ever happen, of course. Uh, this same colonel later as a general was briefly the commander, of, uh, because he was originally a Bosnian Serb, of the Bosnian uh, uh, Serb blockade of Sarajevo at the beginning of the Bosnian War. Now we know what, what the, the Bosnian Serb army, which was one of the successor armies of the Yugoslav People's Army, did uh, to Sarajevo and, and other parts of Bosnia. I mean, the cities were indiscriminately bombarded. Uh, so I think Slovenia already showed that, the, that this army, as the last kind of Yugoslav Titoist institution, could not really survive in this changing world. So this is another reason why I think this war is important. The army at that time was still, nevertheless, as I said, and I think it's important to remember, it included many Bosnian Muslims and Macedonians, Kosovo Albanians, Croats, and a few Slovenes still. But increasingly, it became a Serb army. I would say by spring 1992, within nine months from the war in Slovenia, it was a, a Serbian army. And then it officially ceased to exist anyway also. So I, I realise this was a long time ago, but do you remember yourself during the war? What what did you hope the outcome of the war would be? Were you concerned by the prospect of Slovenia leaving or, would you, or were you keen to avoid bloodshed yourself? 
both <laughs> both so so actually one so so as part of my current project uh, i i also actually saved my correspondence from those days this is the time before email of course so the communication was done via handwritten letters some phone calls of course uh, but we couldn't really always go out to a post office to make phone calls and i've also spoken with so far i i've held extensive interviews uh, over a period in each interview over several days, so many hours of interviews with six other com- former soldiers from across former Yugoslavia, and then less kind of detailed uh, communication with another five or six. And it's interesting that actually virtually all of us were very happy to, to have been kind of posted to Ljubljana. My military service began in September 1990, uh, so this is actually only two months before this referendum on independence. And, and so, so I wondered, I first thought that I was probably spectacularly uninformed about what was going on in Yugoslavia, but actually everybody else was similarly, it seems, uninformed. N- not really. Nobody believed that there would be a war. We thought there were some political tensions, but Ljubljana is a cool place. It's kind of, as I said, it already had this alternative culture and, and, and you know, it's, it actually sounds totally okay to go there rather to end up in some kind of Bosnian mountain or uh, on the border of Kosovo and Albania. I mean, uh, so to us, this was this was great. Uh, I personally, and most of us, all that we were concerned about, in, certainly during this uh, really tough military training, the first three months, but the training lasted six months, but the first three months were very tough. I was in the military police. We were only concerned about, you know, we were counting days. We were waiting for this to end. Now, once the war begins, things change. And it's different with different people. But I I personally can say I was extremely scared. So during this training period, which I think in our case just finished, but, but all you want to do is to try to kind of avoid doing heavy duties, especially after the training. So any excuse you can use... Uh, to not to do some training, uh, you know, going on a march or whatever, clean your weapon, you you do. So so uh, just a day or two before the war broke out, we played football. It was actually late June and it was very warm. And because we only had boots, we, we played football baref- barefoot. Uh, and I remember that I got some minor infection. I'm not sure why. Some Sorry, not infection, allergy, allergical reaction, probably to some grass or some plant that was on this, uh, within the barracks. So I, I slightly exaggerated this. And I was given by a, by a local military doctor uh, uh, a kind of... Um, uh, um, some sort of a medical uh, statement that I could that I can be excused from wearing boots for three days and I should apply some cream and if you cannot wear boots that means you don't need to do any work and so so just to explain my st- frame of mind but this was very typical I was not unusually bad uh, I probably shouldn't be saying this in public but when the war starts my officer actually uh, tells me that this this is a joke you must put the shoes on the war has started something like that was a dramatic statement and of course i immediately became very embarrassed that i was so i kind of you know i'm loyal to this army and then i'm extremely afraid <laughs> uh, i actually really begin to for the first time we were given a real ammunition hitherto we never used real ammunition so the first time we have real ammunition we don't sleep i i was sleep deprived i remember seven nights of not sleeping at all we could only sleep during the day but at night we expect an attack and I remember the eighth night, or maybe the seventh, but after about a week of not sleeping during the night, I, I thought I will f- I will take a nap even if somebody shoots at me. I don't care anymore. So we are afraid. We are hoping that this war will not last long. We are hoping that you, at least I, but speaking to, to, to let's say, uh, Bosnian Muslim and Macedonian and other Serb and Montenegrin conscripts, they were all pro-Yugoslav at this time. One of my Croatian informants, for instance, who was a model soldier, he would have never done what I just described. Uh, He told me that he felt awful because Croatia declared independence and he felt that he was now the enemy, that he would be probably arrested. But it never crossed anybody's, I mean, my mind, and I don't think, but we all went through, you know, various fears and and, and we didn't know this was a complete shock. Now, once this 10-day war was over, as I mentioned, the army began uh, uh, retreating uh, to other parts of Yugoslavia, mainly Bosnia and Serbia. 
And as a military policeman, at my unit actually, as a military police, we were part of many of these convoys. We were securing these convoys. And this is this would be another story. But we had various uh, kind of uh, experiences in Croatia and in Bosnia and in Serbia. We were welcomed in, in Bosnia, for instance, in a predominantly Muslim city, which would later suffer from the Bosnian-Serb army, a city called Bihać. We were greeted like heroes of the veterans of the Slovenian war, which we lost. Uh, we didn't have to pay for any drinks in a bar, which turned out to be owned by a famous rock star. We didn't know at the time. We didn't have to pay for food in restaurants and so on. So it was it was very... But I actually felt very sad that Yugoslavia would collapse. And I didn't know what... Uh, I, I guess we were all surprised that the war came. And and now you know maybe we were we were like nineteen twenty. You can imagine what kind of things we think about, especially in this sort of a prison style environment, no female presence anywhere. And you know, we we want to talk we want to talk about music. We want to talk about girls. Maybe we want to talk about you know football. Uh, basketball at that time Yugoslavia became the European champion in basketball at the end of of June but we didn't even know this and and so these were the things that we were interested in not really the war I mean as far this is certainly me and soldiers I have interviewed extensively now of course this is 30 years later I don't know whether that you know they're telling the truth but I, I'm pretty sure that we were a bit confused actually we are talking about conscripts who are 19 20 year olds uh, old who as I said always counted days until they go home and now now this is nine months into their 12 month military service you're already a veteran soldier you kind of can get away with with doing things that perhaps you couldn't at the beginning and you you were hoping for this less stressful final quarter of your service before you go home, suddenly you are told your your, your national service may be uh, extended uh, indefinitely. So, of course, you are not happy about that. So, all sorts of... Um, all sorts of uh, of emotions. What actually, for instance, also interesting, perhaps it might be, how memory works. I was convinced, for instance, that this blockade was total uh, through, during this period. And I certainly remember we didn't have any bread for days. So we had to eat some very, very old uh, army food packs, and it was awful. But I discovered now going through my own papers that, that even during this period, there was a time when I was able to, to, to send a telegram to my parents to say I'm alive from a small post office, which was kind of on, on the edge of my barracks. And I'm not sure how this was possible. So the blockade must not have been a total, total during this period. Uh, I also there was also a, a, a kind of a tr um, small kiosk within the barracks where we could buy newspapers, and there was a woman who was working there, and she was still coming to work during this siege. It's not all the time, but at the beginning she was able to come to work, and I know that we gave her, I gave her my my parents' home number so that she could call them and say that I was okay. And, I, and now looking at my letters, I see that I was able to write during this time, and these letters eventually made their way to my parents. Uh, this is a strange moment when this country collapses, but it's not collapsed yet. So things still function, like post office, uh, phone connections. I actually, uh, when I ended my military service on the 13th, of, it was Friday, the 13th of September, 1991. It was during, the, uh, for a few days, the, the uh, flights between Ljubljana and Belgrade had been re-established. So I actually flew back because it became dangerous by that time to go by train through Croatia where the war was beginning to escalate. But but there were flights between, even though these countries were, they were no longer, this was kind of still domestic flight. So so this this break never happens at once. Uh, and, and also it... it, it, it it, it takes different kind of form and, and, and it happens at a different pace in, in, in different levels, if, if that makes sense. It's actually quite an, an interesting period when everything collapses around you, but you're part of that and you don't really always see it maybe as, as much as maybe one can from outside or as, as you can now from a, from a perspective, you know, after 30 years from this uh, distance. So I suppose you're quite unusual as... A historian that you're writing about a subject where you, that you lived through, you you participated in. What do you think are the the, ch the challenges of, of that approach? And also, I suppose, what 
what are the benefits of writing about a period that you witness firsthand? That's a great question. And actually, I've thought a lot about this. In fact, uh, I... Uh, I kind of uh, uh, I always remember one 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 well-known historian Donald Sassoon uh, once said uh, that actually the advantage of being a historian is that you you should really you you can write about whatever you want so long as you do it kind of, you, you do serious research but you can choose your own topics and 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 I suppose at that time Donald was a very established historian and I I was at the beginning of my career and I you know I was always told you should choose something that maybe would be published or and I also didn't you know and one of the things you always have to have documents to prove but I suppose I I I, I was uh, I was at this stage of my career or perhaps I became adventurous enough, I said, you know, I decided to write about this. It was partly because I was contacted by some of these former soldiers, fellow soldiers, with whom I had not had any contact for, for at that time, 26, seven years. Uh, they, they formed a Facebook group for, for these members of this unit. You know, all sorts of uh, Croats, Muslims, uh, Serbs, Bosnians, and so on. Macedonians, Montenegrins, exchanging memories, uh, photos. And as a historian, I started kind of asking serious questions. But guys, what do you think? I mean, I mean, you, you're only talking this in this nostalgic terms. And, you know, not, obviously it was maybe a great time, but then soon after there was a war and, and, you know, and nobody really responded to me. But then when I had some one-to-one discussions, some of some of these soldiers said, yeah, what you said made me think, and you're right. And, and then I thought it would be good to talk to people, actually, to try to discover, to find out a little bit more. Because in the literature on Yugoslavia, we don't have this. There is a gap. In, there are several gaps. First of all, this war is largely forgotten. Uh, secondly, this is a period, as I said, where Yugoslavia is maybe... No, is is transforming into something else, but it's still there. So many institu- many things still function at the federal level. So it's a kind of this this very short transition to from peace to war, from a, a unified country to to a, a fragmented country, this disintegrated country. And so the and, and it's not really covered by anybody, especially from this perspective. And then especially the army, uh, the the few works, good works that we have on the army tend to focus on generals and officers. And, and the army was, of course, a huge institution. One should not necessarily paint it in, in simplistic brushes. There were very different uh, responses to the conflict among different uh, uh, officers, even junior officers, let alone conscripts. And I thought that I could not possibly hope to cover all of this. But if I focused on this small group, one other thing that actually might be might be of interest, and it's relevant to this, which made me think about doing this project, uh, is that... I actually returned to to Slovenia and to Ljubljana in 2004 already. And the reason for that is that I had just published a a book that was well received by by scholars in the region. Uh, It was an edited book called Yugoslavism. And so uh, a rather eminent Slovenian historian uh, who, who is based at the Slovenian Academy invited me. He, he read the book and he wanted to organize a kind of roundtable discussion to, by way of launching the book. So I returned there for the first time since 1991. I went now at this time as a lecturer, at that time based at Nottingham University, but, you know, relatively young British-based academic. And I'm going back to talk about, and to me, this was actually, I, I left as, a, as somebody who was supposed to be defending Yugoslavia, but who was uh, seen by many among the locals as somebody who was occupying them. And I go back only 13 years later, less than 13 years later, to actually talk about the history of the Yugoslav idea. And I am received very well and everybody there, all these young students who are really curious. And I unexpectedly during my presentation, I mentioned that I, <laughs> that I was here and in what capacity. And then everybody was so impressed and they wanted to talk about it. So I felt that there was actually some interest in this, that, you know, even among Slovenians, especially younger generations who wanted to know more about this. And of course, it's a challenge because I'm, I'm also kind of interviewing myself. I'm, I'm still not sure whether I will have a footnotes in which I would, because I mean, some things that I was absolutely certain about, I've now discovered that that my memory was wrong. Uh, 
even in my own papers, I found out. So I'm not sure yet whether I will have, like, you know, in the main text, I will say what I, because I'm in a way interviewing myself. I'm relying on my, my own memory. I'm, I have to do that actually even more than I had originally intended, because my, my research has been affected by very much by the pandemic. So actually, I'm kind of, really, I started in, in, in late 2019, but I only managed to do the first round of interviews. The idea was to do at least three and to expand this to number from six to 10, approximately, possibly even 12. But this may not be possible now. There is a great emphasis now on autobiographical. And at the moment, I call this approach collective autobiography, because it's also what I learned about myself, I learned from, from what others have told me. There were things like some embarrassing things, the, music, the kind of music I listened to that I chose to forget. Uh, I don't know, MC Hammer and the Vanilla Ice and this uh, kind of bad hip hop. But apparently I also liked Joy Division and uh, and the Smiths, which is true, actually. And I chose to remember only that. But things that I learned about myself from speaking to others, because I also asked them to tell me what they remember about me and what they remembered about others. So there, it's a challenge. It's actually also much more emotional than I thought. I must admit that I found it much, much more difficult than I expected. I'm also now, uh, a part of my research will now look at that, how, how it is to feel your own research. Uh, this would be part of a kind of this, you know, there, there is a, one of the, the trends in, currently in historiography is to look at the history of emotions. Uh, but in this particular case, it's unusual because I'm feeling my own research even more than I normally would, I guess. Uh, so it is it is an original, if I'm allowed to say, a pioneering methodology that combines several approaches, including local history and microhistory. And so 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 I mentioned that I, I I was there in 2004 for this, and I actually then then I established a good collaboration with Slovenian historians, and I went back to Slovenia quite frequently in the following years. And on one of those visits, I actually went to the former barracks to see them. And now part of it is now given back to the Roman Catholic Church. So it's a Slovenian Catholic seminary. But part of it is now... Uh, used by the current Slovenian army. So I was not allowed to make any photos because of that, but I was allowed to look. And so so when I joined this group, I, I, I kind of asked this awkward question at the beginning, nobody responded. And I was kind of not, not an important member of this discussion, actually. But then I mentioned in one of the discussions that I was back in there. And then suddenly I became like the most important. I was almost there was some, almost like I'm, I'm the one who, uh, who made the pilgrimage, right? So I'm the one who went back, the only one. So they asked me, but how was it? And I realized that there is some connection with this space, with the barracks. So, so, so some of these former soldiers would be posting Google images from, from their village in Western Serbia or from their uh, uh, new home in, in South Germany. Uh, and they're, they're not able to go there, but they're, they're, they're constantly looking at Google images of the, of the barracks. So I realize that there is some connection with this space. So this story that I'm trying to say is, is a story that only could only happen in this small relatively small uh, space. And, and there is something sacral about this also, I felt in this. And of course, Tito is very important. Tito, Tito, who had been dead for 10 years, but who was still officially our kind of never, um, uh, for, no, never to be forgotten founder of the army. He was also, as I said, the leader of the partisan resistance during the Second World War, out of which the army grew at the end of the war. And Tito is very much so. So I'm introducing two other characters in the book. And one is the space, the stage. This is the barracks. And another one is a Tito as a, some sort of... Uh, demigod figure who is there, who is also very present in many of these. Because also in discussions with soldiers, I'm also interested in growing up in socialism, growing up in how was it to be a, a child in the 1970s Yugoslavia during the golden age of, of Titoism? How was it to be a teenager? What kind of music did we listen? What kind of smells do we remember from the barracks, for instance? I mean, uh, things like that. I'm interested in a number of, of, of things. Uh, so, so hopefully this will, this will eventually be an interesting book once I write it. I'm, I'm, I'm approximately halfway through the project. But as I said, because of the pandemic, things have been delayed a little bit, like everything else. But it's good to, to, to thank you for this opportunity to kind of discuss a little bit more uh, 30 years after, after, after all this happened. 
That was Professor Dejan Jokic of Goldsmiths University. His research project is funded by the British Academy and the Leverholm Trust. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in again on Friday for the first episode in our new series on festive food through the ages with the food historian Annie Gray. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.